We had identified some time ago a relationship with a company that actually produced PPE locally. One of the, there aren't a whole lot of them, but they produced it locally. We supported them, even though maybe their pricing was a little bit higher than we could get from overseas and bought a lot of product from them. And they proved to be a very loyal supporter of our organization through all this. That was Barkley Burdan, CEO, Texas Health Resources. Barkley explained how THR's longstanding relationship with the local PPE supplier allowed THR to avoid problems inherent in the global supply chain for PPE that has caused substantial disruption in the care of COVID patients throughout the country. I'm Gary Bisbee, and this is Fireside Chat. Barkley discussed the approach that the four counties of North Texas have taken with the coronavirus outbreak and the coordination between local, county, and state officials. He outlined the virtual dashboard that THR developed to monitor COVID growth, use, and need for PPE and staffing, and the analytics that are associated with it. Barkley reviewed the effect that postponing elective surgery has had on THR's financials and its currently strong balance sheet. He spoke about THR's commitment to its physicians and employees and that there have been no furloughs. I'm delighted to welcome Barkley Burdan to the microphone. Good afternoon, Barkley. Good afternoon, Gary. How are you? Well, thank you, sir. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're all facing the COVID-19 outbreak, and we appreciate your joining us to discuss what is the status of the surge in North Texas and how Texas Health Resources is responding. So why don't we start with the coronavirus timeline? How are things faring there in North Texas? Well, I would say in North Texas, we're maybe in the early phases of a surge. We actually started Texas Health officially standing up uh, some of our management groups and uh, probably about the end of the last week of February and have been tracking things and advancing things ever since. If I fast forward to today, we have had so far 23 deaths in the four county area of Collin, Dallas, Denton, and Tarrant County, which are the main four counties of North Texas. And we've had 1,409 cases, positive cases. Have you had any indication from the CDC about when it's likely to hit? Gary, when we first started looking at a number of the models that are out there, we thought that the peak would happen this week. The current models really have the peak happening really much later in April or early May. A big issue has been testing capability, which has been a challenge here in North Texas. What we do know is that our growth rate right now is between 15 to 20 percent for the past several days, and probably a lot of people have seen models that have sort of best, average, and worst curves attached to them, and right now our modeling would say we're probably closest to our average curve. Any sign that the testing supplies are going to become more available? No. There have been a number of new tests become available, but one of the challenges that we have had in North Texas is trying to get a hold of the test kits. FEMA has intercepted them and redirected them. So we have now got the ID Now test kits that are available, and we've distributed them to all of our hospitals. We'd like more, but right now we've got a capability to do about 2,000 a week, and that'll go up. 
We expect to next week bring an Abbott M2000 online, which will give us the capability of doing about 3,000 a week if we get the test kits. The other thing that's occasionally off and on been a challenge has been the media and the swabs. The last week or so, that doesn't seem to have been a problem. We stood up some remote testing sites that were walk-in for our physician group that served the patients of our physician group, opened our fourth one this week, spread across North Texas, and so far we've been able to keep those going. Each site can do about 50 tests a day. We've been monitoring PPE as well as test swab uh, and media material, and they've been able to keep up with it, so that's a good sign. A couple weeks ago, I guess, the federal government brought two testing stations to Dallas that were located here that were capable of doing several hundred tests a day each. Unfortunately, I saw on the the mayor of Dallas's website that they've told him that on April 10th, they're going to pack up and go home. So that'll put a dent in it. Clearly understandable that as they stood up the commercial capabilities that they were flooded with tests, and we've seen them struggle with that at times. But right now, we're seeing the average time for a commercial test turnaround to be two to two and a half days, maybe uh, uh, one day, but more likely two days, maybe three days, more likely two days. We're really thinking by the time we get to the end of, of April, internally, we'll be able to do about 6,500 tests a week. And that'll really help us in the hospitals um, because right now we have a substantial number of PUIs, persons under investigation, who are awaiting responses from the commercial testing that are occupying beds. And what we've generally found both in our outpatient testing and in our inpatient testing is that somewhere around 10 to 12% of those folks are going to test positive. But the ones in the beds are may or may not have to stay in the hospital, and we'd like to free up that capacity. So it'll just and you know when we're chewing up uh, PPE, it's just not a great situation. First thing is getting testing available in-house so that we can get determinations on the PUIs and the people in the emergency rooms, so that we can let the folks in labor and delivery and in the OR test those patients and. They can be more confident that the patients they're taking care of are not infected. And then we'll start moving out into the larger community with essential workers because we, we certainly know that a lot of employers in the area, whether it's the city who operates the sanitation services, for instance, or the police and fire, or the EMTs and the first responders um, are all interested. And while there is some testing through the counties that's available uh, for those folks, Best practice has shown two things in general really have an impact on the shape and duration of the infection in a community. The first is your suppression activities, basically how effective you are at getting people to isolate themselves and prevent the infection from spreading. And a big piece of that, aside from stay-at-home type orders, is the ability to test people. We saw that in a couple of countries do widespread testing, and, and we do not have widespread testing available to us at this point. So we're having to rely in North Texas mostly at this point on 
our ability to prevent the spread of infection by stay-at-home orders, which has its own challenges. Right. What has been the population's view of staying at home and self-distancing? Mixed, as you might imagine. The Dallas-Fort Worth area has about 7.5 million people. Most of that population is in the four main counties, but our service area is 16 counties, so all the surrounding counties are a part of that. People travel across political lines to go to work, to shop, to play, to go to school. So it's a very mobile society. And a real challenge for us has been that the political leaders have not acted in unison. So we've had a lot of variation. The first act was really the county judge in Dallas County, who was followed relatively quickly by the mayor of Dallas. The governor has not done a stay-at-home order, but has, you know, obviously has declared a disaster, as have ultimately all the county judges. And then what's happened has been this progression, really, over the last three and a half weeks of everybody sort of responding and tightening and pushing. Where we were at the beginning of this week was one of the four main counties, Collin County, which is north of Dallas County, very high growth area, lots of population, had really resisted strong stay-at-home orders and had businesses pretty much still operating. The governor of Texas this week finally defined essential businesses within his order. He left it vague up until that point, and that really forced the county judge in Collin County to rescind his order and direct the businesses to close. I think in the end, what we have right now is reasonably good, what I'll call suppression tactics going on. I can look out my window, there's still people driving around, but it's nowhere near the number of people. We've had news reports of people going out to exercise and not necessarily paying much attention to social distancing, and we have different counties that respond differently. When the stay-at-home orders were first put in place in Dallas, we actually had employees that were coming to work in our facilities that were stopped by the police. But that hasn't happened in any other county. And actually, the police have kind of backed off on that at this point. So the challenge is Texas has always seen itself as a very business-friendly state and one that respects people's independence. And that's the balance that the politicians have tried to achieve what the healthcare leaders, myself and the other healthcare leaders in North Texas have really been pushing on is that time is of the essence and in the absence of our ability to do a widespread testing, the biggest tool that we have to limit the shape and scope and duration of the infection in North Texas is what they like to call stay-at-home orders. But I think in general, people are adapting to the change, trying to comply. I spend every Friday morning on a call with a number of the employers and several other healthcare systems a lot that's moderated by Mercer and Oliver Wyman, and just listening to the challenges that they're seeing with their employees and make sure that we're paying attention to the the anxiety, the challenges of such big changes in patterns, people working from home, dealing with children and pets, being around. We are seeing 
as I think everybody that gets in this situation starts to see in the community that there's a little bit of an increased level of abusive behavior. Unfortunately, we're, we're really pushing out some of our behavioral health services in terms of availability to folks and making sure employers know what they can access in that regard. What's been Texas Health Resources policy on your own employees, Barkley, in terms of working remotely? We have a substantial number of people that are working remotely. I mean, I'm sitting in the corporate office today. I come in two days or so a week, and normally it's a pretty populated office. There's probably about 20 cars in the parking lot today. So, you know, most people that can work remotely, we pushed out and are working at home. Our IT people just really did a yeoman's job. We had a certain store of equipment that we could give to people if they didn't have equipment. And we made a number of adaptions along the way. And part of the challenge is making sure that we retain a secure environment with our IT infrastructure. And we have seen a bit of an increase in attempts to violate that security from the outside. But I think we've got a great group of folks. They're paying good attention. We've got the right rules in place. So a lot of people working from home. It is a bit different to have meetings via Skype or other Zoom or, you know, different software that's out there. Probably spend more time on the telephone than we did before because you're not having any face-to-face meetings. There are some positives to it, though. If you're not doing a video meeting, you can get up in the morning and stay in your jammies. You don't have to shave, you know, you know, some things you don't have to do. And, you know, if you're not going to be on a video, there's always a bright side. Yep, bright side for sure. What about postponing elective or non-emergent surgery? Have you done that yet? Oh, yeah. We did that several weeks ago. Some of the orders, the executive orders that have come from either at the county or the city or the state level, actually, were commanding that hospitals quit doing quote-unquote elective cases, but we had actually wound down about a week or so before they mandated it from a regulatory or executive order point of view. That's for all the systems in the area. Our wholly owned hospitals, our joint venture hospitals, our joint ventured ASCs, well, the joint ventured ASCs are pretty much not doing anything and uh, hospitals are still doing emergency surgeries, and we gave them some guidance in terms of, you know, what might be considered elective and and not elective because, you know, there are things that are posted on the schedule that, you know, just because it's posted in advance on the schedule doesn't mean that it's truly elective. So we're still doing cases that, you know, you might expect are appropriate. How about redeploying caregivers? Have you needed to do that yet? We've done that to some degree. Our process here has been to really pivot the entire organization and look at how we're organized to deal with a completely different flow of patients. We had teams that were working on emergency room access first and how we were going to standardize the process in all of our ERs of receiving patients and sorting patients and and treating patients and completed that and ran all those pilots to make sure it was all working everywhere last week. This week, really concentrating on our inpatient surge plans, which has really kind of three parts to it. 
One is first the beds, and obviously once we canceled all the schedules for elective care, we freed up quite a bit of capacity. So we have those beds as well as some other beds that we brought into service that were out of service. Second thing you have to do is to look at how you're going to staff those, and, and clearly the staff that were working in surgery and PACUs and on those elective sides and, and the nursing floors, we are retraining and will deploy them into these redesigned care flows and floors. And then a third piece is really ventilator counts and, and anticipated ventilator demand and, and how we're going to manage that. We've really got our first round of all that planned and are testing it this weekend. And we've designed virtual dashboards for each facility where they can also use some predictive analytics once we're really in the thick of things to anticipate where volumes are going to pick up and where they're going to need resources, people resources, ventilator resources, supplies, PPE. We've been doing quite a bit. Right now, I think if I looked in all of our facilities, on top of the, the volume that was left after we cut all the elective cases, that's sort of our baseline emergency volume. We have about another 850 beds that we had available right away. And we've figured that we can add about another 1,100 beds to that with the staffing that we have. So we can bring a substantial number of beds online and staff it and uh, are pretty comfortable with that. Do you anticipate any furloughs anytime in the near future? We're not at this point. We have a reassignment pool. And as we go through the process of finishing these designs, we're offering folks the opportunity to get reassigned. Uh, but I think the prudent thing to do at the present time is to basically say, we're going to need all hands on deck. And you may not be working at the same job you were working at. We've reassigned some nurses to our call center is a great example. So instead of providing care at the bedside, you might be providing a triage on a phone. And until things settle down, we're not going to make any change to that. So turning to economics, discontinuing elective surgery. So what does it look like for this year for your financials? Well, that's a good question. We're monitoring that with some regularity. We had a pretty good size pool of dollars in our investment pool, and there's we, we've clearly lost some value there, but the market improved from last week. We gained back about $193 million from some that we lost uh, the week before. We had a few variable rate bonds that we were concerned about being remarketed, and we're prepared to repurchase any of those to prevent failed remarketing, which we don't think is likely anyway. We had some lines of credit that we've drawn down, but we're very liquid. We've probably got close to three quarters of a billion dollars of liquid assets, same day availability at this point outside of our investment accounts. And that was one of the first things we did as we started looking at this was say, we got to make sure we got plenty of cash available. At the present time, we're in reasonably good shape. Our revenues are obviously down 35% or so, I would say, overall. Uh, our expenses are up because we're incurring a lot of expenses and everybody's still fully employed. So our monthly operations are going to take a dip, but our overall financial position is strong. Do you have any indication yet how much might be coming from the federal government with the fund? No, 
The distribution of the supplies never made it to Dallas-Fort Worth. Got whatever there was got directed somewhere else. We're standing up the ability to apply for some of the funding. One of the things we've learned from past challenging periods is that you got to start keeping the records of what you're spending money on up front. So we're doing all that. But at the present time, we're not concerned about how quickly that flows. We just want to make sure we're, we get our fair and appropriate share of it as time goes on. If we could turn to governance for a second, what have you been communicating to your board and how often are you communicating with them? Our board met five times a year and operated in a committee structure. We've only kept one committee active. We moved all of our meetings to virtual. We've only kept one committee active. That's our quality committee, quality and performance committee, because they handle credentialing of physicians and that group of functions. My board will next meet at the end of April. It'll be a virtual meeting. What I've done in the meantime is send them a weekly, midweek written report that highlights things that have, have happened during the last week. And then on Friday, we do a call at 11 o'clock for the board members. The written report actually goes to the board and the committee members. The call is the, it's not an official board meeting, it's just a call. We answer questions about the written report, provide some updates and have some dialogue, answer questions. I would say my board at the early outset, we basically talked and they passed a resolution that gave myself and the CFO pretty substantial powers to act without them because they did not want us to be hindered in any way, shape, or form in terms of expense limits or anything. They're a very supportive board. We're working to keep them informed, provide counsel and guidance, and uh, that's where we stand right now. Great relationship, very supportive. This has been a terrific interview, Barkley. Thanks so much. Appreciate your being with us. Let me, if I could, ask one final question, which is there's been discussion around among your colleagues, other CEOs, about the global supply chain. And the question is, should we begin to manufacture all these critical life-saving devices and equipment, manufacture it in the U.S. and not count on the global system, which has been challenging during the last couple of months? Do you have any thoughts about that? I definitely think that we will move in that direction as a country. If I jump down to the local marketplace here, we had identified some time ago a relationship with a company that actually produced PPE locally. One of the, there aren't a whole lot of them, but they produced it locally. We supported them, even though maybe their pricing was a little bit higher than we could get from overseas and bought a lot of product from them. And they proved to be a very loyal supporter of our organization through all this. That's a good example of that point and what we might be turning to. Barkley, thanks so much. This has been terrific. We do appreciate it. And our thoughts and prayers are with all of you at Texas Health Resources in North Texas. Well, Gary, we hope that you and everybody at the Academy stay well, stay safe, and we look forward to a time when we can get together again. And to all the members of the Academy, I send the same wishes. Stay well, stay safe. This episode of Fireside Chat is produced by Stratfire. 
please subscribe to Fireside Chat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to rate and review Fireside Chat so we can continue to explore key issues with innovative and dynamic healthcare leaders. In addition to subscribing and rating, we have found that podcasts are known through word of mouth. We appreciate your spreading the word to friends or those who might be interested. Fireside Chat is brought to you from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., where we explore the intersection of healthcare politics, financing, and delivery. For additional perspectives on health policy and leadership, read my weekly blog, Bisbee's Brief. For questions and suggestions about Fireside Chat, contact me through our website, firesidechatpodcast.com, or gary at hmacademy.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.